Welcome to One Square Mile in North East Fife, a podcast from the University of St Andrews. I'm Ruth Sanderson and in each episode I'll be chatting to one of our academics about their life and the real world impact their research has on all of our lives. Today I'm joined by Professor Ali Ansari from the School of History here at St Andrews. Obviously, I'm uh, Iranian by origin myself, so I have the languages, I have Persian. I've always been fascinated by history. Uh, I've always been fascinated by writing, really, to be honest, research and writing. And therefore, I combined these both, you know, the interest and the ability, if I can put it that way. My interest also in, 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 in modern Iran was was also driven by the fact that it's, it's obviously been such a, a central part of my of my life as someone who left the country during the revolution in 1979 is obviously featured quite heavily. It's cast quite a long shadow. So in, in that sense, I was always keen to understand a little bit more about Iran, but also its relations with the West. And so actually a, a, a large uh, part of my work in the last decade at least has been actually looking at the relationship between Iran and the West and Britain in particular. So it sort of marries these two two aspects of my own of my own life. Do you think there is a misinterpretation of Iran by the West? I think there is. I mean I think there is because partly it's it's a result of, you know, general ignorance. It's partly also because Iran or, you know, let's use the traditional Western term Persia, which would will connote all sorts of other sort of associations in, 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 in Western minds, is not really taught, is not really uh, understood. I mean, for understandable reasons in many ways, and it's not a feature of a curriculum in that sense. And yet, I think Iran plays such a pivotal role in the history of the West. So when you're studying the history of the West, the Greeks, the Romans, and later on, you know, the Persians feature fairly prominently, actually, in, in many ways. But always, as I as I said to a colleague of mine, as a sort of a best supporting actor, you know, mm-hmm. comes in as a bit part and then sort of gets beaten and then, you know, um, and that's it, really. And it, 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 in the Persia becomes a sort of a metaphor in the West for decadence and decline and this sort of thing. Whereas, you know, what I am trying to do, and I think what I've tried to do here at St Andrews, is really situate the study of Iran as... Uh, something of importance in its own right, and you know Persian civilization as being something worthy of of study and research on a par with any European country. Really, I think it adds, hopefully, to our understanding of Europe. Actually, I mean that that's where I think the the the, the value added comes. And you talked about being at school when the revolution of 1979 happened. So tell me, where were you at school? What was your childhood like? It's interesting insofar as because my father was a diplomat, I actually spent a lot of my early childhood in Europe. I mean, he was a diplomat for the Shah. Uh, he then retired, we went back to Iran, and I actually was a student at the British School in Tehran. So I'm an alumni of the British School in Tehran, a great school, and then was being sent, dispatched off to boarding school in the UK. Interestingly enough, in the summer of 78, which is just about as the revolution was kicking up steam in Iran. Of course, you know, the interesting thing, uh, for those of us who sort of study the period in retrospect, is at the time... Uh, I didn't think I was leaving the country forever. You know, we all thought, well, I just thought I was coming to school. I mean, obviously I was quite young. I think I was 10, I think. Um, and we knew there were problems. 
but nobody actually took it too seriously. And then, of course, the whole thing unraveled by the time I'd got to the UK, started school that September. You know, the situation in Iran was getting worse and worse and worse. The rest of the family then came out. And, you know, the rest is history, as they say. I mean, you know, basically that was the transformational uh, moment. So I always say to people, and even when I'm teaching the history of the revolution, is revolutions are are sort of understood much clearer in retrospect. At the time, when you're living through it, people don't fully understand what the hell's going on. They clearly feel something is going on, but, it, it, you know, you don't give it that sort of revolutionary authenticity, if I can put it that way, you know, that sort of idea that this is something really quite momentous. Nobody sort of goes around thinking we're living through something momentous until often it's too late, and then they realise that something really very serious is happening, um, certainly for, for our lives. So that's, you know, my background really is that, you know, I spent very little of my... Uh, younger life in Iran, per se, uh, probably about four years, um, and even then at the British School in Tehran. But it, it's you know the whole experience, my family, my background, whatever. It 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 clearly does leave a large sort of um, imprint, you know, on the way you look at things. It's interesting talking about spending so little time mm. in Iran. Growing up, I wonder if the lifelong obsession if I can call it an obsession, yeah. because it's not just a job for you, Alan, yeah. really, is it? Yeah, obsession, vocation, yeah. yeah. The lifelong vocation um, into the study of Iran and, and trying to make sense of it and sense yeah. of it within a Western context. Do you think there's part of the young Ali who kind of wishes he'd been at home more or wishes that he'd spent more time in Iran? It's It's interesting that it's... Is it almost like a surrogate trying to understand it? I... I do you think undoubtedly there's an element of you know what 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 drives us to sort of understand and and is to try and make sense of something that was at the time fairly nonsensical you know and but i you know in many ways i think that drives a lot of research is the the attempt to try and make sense of what we ultimately think is a you know a, a world of nonsense to sort of paraphrase a sort of a nietzschean phrase i have to say but it's it's so for me and i think you see that a lot in in other historians and and political scientists and others who come for instance from eastern europe uh um, you know other countries around the world that have experienced political trauma of one sort or another you know there's an element where it uh, fosters a degree of creativity if i can put it that way you know you're, you're forced to confront things and you're forced to think about things and you know one of the interesting things about Iranian or Persian history in that sense is the tremendous history of political upheaval can often be juxtaposed with tremendous periods of creativity, artistic and otherwise. And it's because people ultimately are trying to make sense of the world around them. They're trying to explain it. And you see this also in Europe, obviously, in different periods. Um, uh, But undoubtedly, it, 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 it has some sort of bearing. I mean, I should also add to that that, I mean, when I was much younger, I didn't always think I was going to go off and be a historian or writer or anything I mean I had other completely unrealistic ambitions so you know I think oh you know I'd like to you know I'd like to you know do all sorts of exciting things I mean obviously as a you know once you go to school and realize you're absolutely hopeless I mean I had a really keen interest in biology for instance my chemistry was so beyond useless that obviously it wasn't going to work out whereas uh, I find I actually I could write essays quite well and I had a, a supposed flair with the English language. So because of that, you know, obviously that directs you. So, you know, the, the, the point about it really is to say that there is a sort of a, an interest, obsession, if you will. But it's got to be matched by, by that sort of thing that you think you have something to contribute as well. I mean, if I didn't enjoy reading and, and uh, 
uh, and wasn't capable of stringing a sentence together, it would have been a difficult option. I think I think those two things have to come together, really. So you left school. At yeah. what point did you arrive in St Andrews? Because there was a, a process before you oh, got yeah. here. Oh yeah, well that's a very yeah. So I mean, the the journey to St Andrews is an interesting one. Uh, I was always I was raised actually in Iran. I had a uh, there's a big secret here. I was raised by a. a uh, a Scottish lady, actually. So I've always had these strong Scottish links. You know, in those days, I don't want to go into huge detail. Maybe, you know, because my father's seen a diplomat and whatever. You know, we had, um, uh, I had a nanny, basically, and she was a very strict Scottish nanny, who I still know. And uh, so I knew Scotland quite well, actually. I mean, it was it was interesting. I had connections to Scotland through her. But I never imagined, really, I'd be here. I mean, in academic jobs, you basically go where the jobs are. I mean, you don't, you know, I don't sort of choose to come. Well, so when I finished my, I did my PhD, I did all my, uh, education in London. I was very uh, unimaginative, I have to say. Uh, and I, you know, did my first degree at UCL, and then I moved to King's. That was very bold, going down the Aldwych, and then uh, ended up in SOAS, where I did this, uh, where I did my PhD. And initially, interestingly, and I always say this to people, I say when you apply to standards, you always you always have to apply twice. You get rejected once, and then you come back years later, and you finally get the job. So I, after I'd finished my PhD, I'd actually come for a job here. It was a, a temporary job, and I must admit, I was I was slightly daunted by it all because you know you arrive in uh, for an interview in October. It's very dark. There's the Lucas Air Force Base. You think, oh my God, you need to get off at the station. I mean, I have no idea where I am and what am I doing here. And you know, having someone who'd been in London all his life. Um, anyway, I came for the interview. I thought I actually gave the interview of my life, actually, I to be honest, but uh, uh, no such luck. And I ended up actually going to Durham. And then I was in Durham very happily for about five years, had a very, very short stint, I have to say, in Exeter. And when I was in Exeter, I suddenly got a call from a co- good colleague of mine in St Andrews. He said, where, where the hell are you? Uh, there's a job opening in St Andrews and, you know, would you be interested? Whatever. And I thought, crikey, you know, I mean, I would be, but I've just moved and all this. Uh, so after a degree of consultation um, with people, and I think, you know, what do I do? I mean, this was also the job in St Andrews would have been a promotion. So I thought, you know, I've got to take this seriously. So I applied and I ended up coming up here. And I kept thinking to myself that I'd always planned my sort of academic strategy my for work was that eventually I would, you know, I'd be in Durham and I'd be zoning back into the home counties. Mm-hmm. And as it happens, I've been going in the reverse direction. So I ended up in 2004 actually out uh, um here unquestionably the best move I made I mean to be honest because I, I used to be in in basically an area studies department both in Durham and, e- and Exeter they were Middle East or Islamic centers Islamic and Middle East centers and I always wanted to be actually in a history department I always fundamentally wanted to be seen as a historian first and then my speciality being the Middle East and Iran I, I, I didn't want to be you know in terms of my own self-identification in that sense, I didn't want to be seen as purely an Iran specialist. Even though that's such a strong feature, I wanted also to have, you know, a good understanding of the discipline. And of course, St Andrews has one of, if not the best departments, schools of history in the country. It was a really fortunate opening and, um, you know, never looked back, really. I mean, to be honest, so it's been it's 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 been really, really, uh, uh, really, really good. And because, you know, St Andrews has the advantage, I think, of you know, one of the top yeah. universities in the country. And yet, interestingly enough for me, it's small enough to be manageable. Mm. You know, I mean, I, there's an attraction to that for me. So it means that if there's an issue, there's a problem. There's, I mean, obviously, I've come here at a much more senior level in terms of, you know, 
the, my academic sort of role. I mean, I came here as a reader and I'm now obviously a, a professor. So, you you know, the longer you're in in any place, you get to know people. But I always found the management structure here was always much flatter than uh, other places. So, you know, you were able to communicate, get things through. I've been able to engage with colleagues from a wide range of backgrounds, be they medievalists, you know, one other sort of areas. Of course, St Andrew's history uh, in the last few years has become much more global in its sort of look. So, I mean, there are people who work on India, the Far East. Um, it's 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 added a huge sort of level of comparative, uh, a comparative element that's been that's been extremely useful to me and obviously very stimulating. But I mean, a lot of my engagement has been with medievalists, funnily enough, because you know when you're working on Iran, the categories of uh, that we have in Western history of you know medieval, modern, early modern, later modern, whatever you want to call it, doesn't always work in Iran or any you know any non-European country in that sense. I like the idea that engaging with historians from a wide range of geographic and chronological sort of areas, it can just give you different perspectives, different insights, and allow you to engage with the topic in a more interesting way. It's a fascinating time to be a historian and maybe quite a challenging time to be yeah. a historian because there is a certain amount of revisionism going on at the minute where you're having to look back and go, ah, OK, we need to actually tackle the question of empire head on or where do things in our collections come from mm. head on and more so now than ever probably. Have you found that in, in the well, schools? Well, it, it's a, yeah, you do. I mean, obviously, you've got to be sensitive to various developments, norms and others that come out. But, I mean, the interesting thing for me, of course, is dealing with Iran. The Persians have never had a problem with their empire. Uh, it's the Europeans that have a problem with their empires, you know, and I find that quite interesting. I mean, I also find it quite baffling that people can talk very, very positively about the Mongol Empire, but struggle to say anything about the European colonial empires. Empire is certainly from a Middle Eastern perspective until the modern era has been the normal state of affairs. So good or bad, ill or whatever you want to call it, I mean, these things are a fact of life and you, you sort of study them. I think it's clearly important. And I mean, one of the interesting things, you see, for instance, if you're looking at history in Iran, just to be, you know, modern history in Iran in particular, but actually any part of history, it's deeply political. My thesis was always about the uses and abuses of history. So I'm fascinated by historiography, you know, the way in which uh, people use history for their own political agenda. But my focus was all on Iran, you know. And one of the things about British history, if I can put it that way, in a sort of a collective way, not American, actually. I mean, the Americans have always been quite politicised in some ways about the founding fathers and the revolutionists or but British history was always, to my mind, quite settled. It was almost quite boring. People just didn't really have those contentious issues in the way that Europeans have, um, and certainly people in the Middle East have, you know, which is a much, much more contentious, politically charged. Uh, you know, you can read uh, texts in uh, Iranian history that you know there's a political bias at work. I mean, it's there, but it's fine. The interesting thing is, as I always say to students, just be aware of where the author is coming from. And I think it's not a bad thing, you know, to be honest, that, British history is being, in its collective, by which, you know, the English, the Scots, the Welsh, it is being slightly sort of, how should we say, uh, ruffled up a bit. So people can understand that these are uh, 
quite political histories, if I can put it that way. They come from certain perspectives. And of course, you know, we've had a great tradition in St Andrews of historiography and understanding historiography and the various ideological agendas behind history. I think that's great. I mean, I think it's important for students to begin to appreciate, really, how even the most you know, pedestrian history, if I can call it that, pedestrian is the wrong term. I mean, maybe the most, you know, orthodox or standard or what we assume often has a germ of a sort of a political agenda behind it. Mm-hmm. And, and we need to understand it. And I think all these things now, I mean, with these, I, I, I must admit, I mean, I do think some of the debates are also coming out of ignorance. I mean, uh, in the sense that it's become so politicised that people actually don't pay enough attention to what's going on in historical records. I'm a strong believer in judging the historical record on the basis of, you know, as a historian, your role is to understand how people saw the world at the time, not to apply our current standards to them necessarily. The whole point of progress, of course, is that we have advanced from them. And of course, that's right. You know, I mean, that, you know, we have progressed in a different direction. In a sense, you know, as I always say to people, if, you know, there was a standard morality across the ages, then there'd be no such thing as progress. You say progress, Ali, but I mean, given the fact that, you know, there has been so much... Uh, protest in the past yeah. year, uh, you know, from Colston statue in yeah, in yeah. Bristol onwards. Um, you say progress, but obviously people have not kind of dealt with a collective past and have very different collective pasts that they're finding hard to understand how they work together or, or how they can exist together. I mean, I think one of the interesting things I think about our history here is that we just haven't really paid attention so there are some people, obviously, that have looked at, uh, you know, the, the history of slavery, Colston and others. I think the vast majority of people probably haven't really paid much attention to it. That's the problem. Um, and then, of course, it become, becomes an issue. I tend to try and find, I mean, rather boringly, a sort of a midway between those who are sort of determined to rip up every sort of piece of cultural heritage that you have and those that are, you know, want it to stay as it is. You know, statues have been up and down you know, pretty regularly, to be honest. It's not unusual for statues to come down. Um, and it depends on, you know, the way society feels about it. I think that's an entirely legitimate debate to have. And, of course, you know, the thing with Coulson's statue, of course, is it's a very late... I mean, it sort of came in the late 90s and it reflected sort of Victorian attitudes and, and, and whatever. It's the same, you know, I mean, I find the situation in, in the United States is quite interesting with all the Confederate statues, um, that, you know, what you find is a lot of these statues actually went up much, much later and were really products of very politically charged events. So it's not certainly not uncontroversial and there are legitimate reasons for concern and legitimate reasons I think for people to say well you know their time is up and it's time to move them I think the wholesale sort of upturning in a sense of a country's cultural heritage is not helpful I mean I I think that needs to be much more carefully uh, thought through because it can disrupt things too much if it encourages from my point of view a much more serious conversation about history great you know I'm all in favor of it what I'm not in favor of is people, for instance, having a sort of a caricature understanding of Churchill, for instance. There's a very interesting debate to be had about Churchill, but it's not as black and white as some people would like to think, you know, on either side of the debate, by the way. But it's, you know, it's become a sort of a litmus test. It's become a focus. It's become far too political and, and politically charged. And I think that sort of thing is unfortunate. There's no point in replacing, in a sense, one tyranny with another. Yeah, the point is actually to have a conversation. I think the debate and the conversation 
as long as it's intelligent, if we can define that, I don't know, but as long as it's serious, I mean, that's a good thing. That's got to be a good thing because I think that enhances knowledge. One of the big beefs, I should say, I have is that we live in a world with far too much information and far too little knowledge. Interesting you mentioned that. I was going to come on to your students mm. as it happens. They're <laughs> very knowledgeable. They're very knowledgeable. At least after my course. So you've been teaching for nearly 20 years here, yes, right? Course, and yeah. that has right. spanned... Uh, the advent of the internet, the advent yeah, of mobiles. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen a difference in student concentration, in kind of where they find information, how they access information, how arguments are, mm. are formed and created because of that? Well, we're, I have to say, on the outset, very fortunate to have some extremely intelligent and uh, high quality students. to this. Um, so, you know, perhaps some of the problems that may emerge from this are not as, you know, don't have as, as serious an impact. However, the point you make, and I think is, is an important one, and it's one that I've certainly noticed, digitization, the sort of Google culture, if I can put it that way, has made us in some ways a little too um, uh, short term, if I can put it that way, in terms of our approach to knowledge, information, others. So we have access, as I said, to a huge amount of information. At our fingertips, you know, we can go onto the iPad, the iPhone, the phone, whatever. We tap in, we pick up things, we can look at things. But the sort of culture, I should say, of deep reflection, reading, exploration, looking at the wider uh, context of an issue, I think in some ways that is in danger of being lost. And, and I do think that's actually probably quite a, a serious problem going forward. To give you, a, 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 I suppose, a better a, a example of this. Um, it's this idea that, you know, we're very functional when it comes to information now and we're very functional when it comes to to writing essays and whatever. We want to know how to do it. We're not as interested anymore in learning the craft. And learning the craft, in a sense, is really a product of wide reading. You know, when I started at university... I mean, it still is now, we sort of base it, but although the, the level of shock that sometimes comes from some students, some, I should say, you know, we say, you know, you should aim to read a book a week. And, you know, sometimes that causes a huge amount, you know, goodness, you know, how is that possible? Well, I mean, it is, you know, you have to develop that sort of skill to be able to absorb, digest, you know, read a book in a sense that, you know, you're able to focus on the important bits. But also, this, this, this is the crucial thing, is while you're focusing on the important bits of the book for your own use you still see on the printed page and in that sort of entirety of that book or whatever the documents, the context of where that information comes out. And that context, it's like I sort of say, the difference between our sort of sat-nav culture and the previous generation of us who used to take out an ordnance survey map, map and unfold it on the table. It's quite interesting. We all sort of sit there with our sat-navs and we say, well, I need to get from, you know, wherever is, you know, Edinburgh to St Andrews and you tap it in and it gives you the sort of point by point turning it's very functional it's very you know, sometimes sends you up the wrong street by the way but nonetheless you know you go A, B, C, D and you get here previously what you do is you unfold the map and you get to the same point but at least you see where Edinburgh is situated vis-a-vis -vis St Andrews the, the hinterland is there I do think that is an issue and I do think that will be a problem going forward that the way in which information is organised will affect the way in which we think and and uh, I do think that's going to be a problem unless, you know, we very deliberately address these sort of issues and not, you know, pander. And I do say that word pander to this notion that everything must be online. Everything must be, uh, how should we say, curated. Uh, when I do my reading list, for instance, I always say to students, this is a guide. 
but go into the library and find what you can. Feel free to explore. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to penalise you. You know, this reading list is not some sort of doctrinaire, you know, you must have, you know, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in you finding out new things. And it's simply to encourage them to feel free to explore. I mean, what's wrong with that? I mean, that's the whole point of research, surely. And some of the best work I've done, I think, when I go even to the National Archives and others, is when I'm not following the trail that has been carefully curated by someone else. It's when I say, oh, I think I'd like to look at that file because it seems interesting. You may find nothing. On the other hand, you may find that nugget that you've been looking for. And 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 this is this is the thing. It's it's understanding the context. Can we talk about 1979 and sure. the uh, the revolution, yeah. which I think most people have heard of the Iranian Revolution, but maybe not everybody knows exactly what happened or or what it was or how significant it was. One of my criticisms really of the West's approach and America's approach really to the Middle East since then is it hasn't really uh, fully digested the impact of the 1979 revolution in terms of how it completely altered the diplomatic and political setup in the Middle East. You know, to turn Iran, this great whopping great big country in the middle of the Middle East, if I can put it that way, you know, sitting between, I mean, this is the end, sitting between Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's vast, it's resource-rich, it's, its population is, is large, it's well-educated, although a lot of them are leaving. The, the fact that that became a pro-Western-leaning country to an anti-Western-leaning country overnight has had a major impact on the rest of the region and also the West's relations with that. And I don't think people have really developed an idea of how to, to handle this. The, sort of the Eurocentric element says 1989, fall of the Berlin Wall, end of the Cold War, this is the you know, most important thing. I mean, that, I wouldn't want to deny that. I mean, that's enormously important. But I think, interestingly enough, 1989 led to a degree of complacency, of course, in the West. You know, we won. <laughs> and, and I mean, I remember at the time, you know, people were, well, you know, crikey, you know, it, it's it's a bit short-sighted because one of the advantages of the Soviet Union being around is you had a very sort of fixed, clear, understandable enemy. You know, the minute you take that opponent out of the equation, you, you you lose focus. And I think people start to lose focus. And, you know, 1979 and, and, and the revolution in Iran as usual in history, in a sense, became something of a, a marginal actor, somewhat, something that happened just off stage. Whereas actually, you know, my entire argument really has been is you've got to move it a little bit more, if not centre stage, it's certainly on the stage. And you need to sort of be able to sort of see how that impacts on, on, on wider issues. I think uh, obsession, if you're with the Cold War, entirely legitimate in some ways, but it was an obsession that basically blinded them to wider issues. And you see that in Afghanistan, of course, you know, in the 1980s when they support the Mujahideen and the radical, you know, Islamist forces against the Soviet Union without really thinking of the longer term consequences of what that might, that might mean. But my, you know, my issue really with that, in particular with Afghanistan, and we've seen more recently, but also earlier on, is that always the West tends, it's a bit like someone said to me, it's a bit like a uh, a lighthouse. It sort of briefly flashes onto an area and it moves on very quickly. So it, it doesn't focus on a to, to to really understand the nature of the problem and try and solve it. It, it. it sees things in very sort of piecemeal terms. And I think also with Iran, I wouldn't want to say that people have not tried to sort of reconcile themselves with the revolution in some ways or try and deal with it. You know, the, their strategic patience, if I can put it that way, has been very short. So when they don't get the result they want, they just sort of say, well, you know... Mm -hmm. Let's forget about this. It's too difficult. Actually, the, the fact that it's difficult means it just needs more resources 
and more attention to detail, mm. you shouldn't lose interest because actually it's it's hugely important. I mean, imagine if you will, if Iran tomorrow suddenly had another switch and became pro-Western, mm. it would transform relations in the Middle East, Afghanistan, Iraq, the Persian Gulf, you know. I mean, it would be transformational. Unfortunately, far too few people think in ambitious terms. Mm. Let's talk about the importance then of yeah. 79 and how we are still feeling it. Yeah. In uh, in our lives today, yeah. I think in a very in a very simple sense. I mean, geopolitically, it completely alters the balance of power in the Middle East. That's one thing, which you know obviously creates certain elements of instability that go forward. And then you know, added to by post nine eleven, the removal of Saddam Hussein, the removal initially of the Taliban, of course, you know, obviously weakened those regional powers, and by by uh, extension, strengthened Iran. You know, in the middle by default. But I think the other main point really is obviously this ideological shift and the the sort of the introduction in a sense. Introduction is is probably not the right term because obviously political Islam existed before that. But what you get here is a political Islam that is non-Arab, which is quite important, and also in possession of effectively a modern state. I mean, a modern state apparatus with the the military equipment that comes with that. So this is a wholly different, you know, being in that sense. The the ideology that is sort of introduced into that, I think it's had various uh, variations on the theme. And I think, you know, there are various times in the history of the Islamic Revolution, the Islamic Republic since 1979, where politicians there could have chosen different paths, by the way. I mean, it could have gone a much more democratic route. It has decided not to. In terms of the political leadership, it's become a much more sort of radicalised, you know, hyper-nationalistic, sectarian uh, movement uh, in Iran, which um, is both anti-Western in its in its posture, but also in its sort of revolutionary posture, quite uh, um, universalistic. Now, what I mean by that is that unlike China, unlike perhaps India and others, the, the Iranians have, through history being very keen to export their, their, their way of looking at things. Now, be that in a cultural idea. And so this is now continued in this. And this is part of the reason why you end up clashing with the Western notion. Because the Western notion, also liberal, you know, Western values, is also very universal, you know, it wants to have universal human rights and so on and so forth. The Iranians are now sort of like a, you know, rock and hard place, going clashing into that and saying, no, you know, we have our own vision. I think it has shaken up the region in a way that uh, people hadn't really anticipated at the time. And I think, you know, there was a period up until really the early noughties where Iran could certainly have gone in a different direction and the direction of travel, you know, it was very contested. I think the politics in Iran uh, remain pretty contested in terms of generally when you look at people in the state. I think now, unfortunately, in terms of the elites in the state, it's, it's, it's become consolidated within a much more hard line radical Islamic vision of where and revolutionary vision of where they want to go. But that shouldn't disguise the fact that there are many people in wider Iranian society, for instance, who, you know, have a memory of and have a desire and aspiration towards uh, a much more democratic settlement for their country. It's just that at the moment they're not really in a position to achieve it. Very striking when you look at the relationship of the contemporary Iranian state with the Taliban in, in, in Afghanistan. 20 years ago, the Taliban were the enemy. They were Sunni. Iran is Shia. Sunni radicals versus sort of a, a Shia system that was a bit more moderate at that time. Now, interestingly enough, the Iranian state is cozying up to the Taliban and says, you know, we're all very like-minded. 
much, I have to say, to the consternation and irritation of many Iranians who sort of think, what the hell is going on? You know, I mean, we, we hadn't really... So, the, you know, that in itself depicts the shift that has happened in the last, you know, 10, 15 years in Iran. How do you think politically today Britain interacts with Iran? I think, you know, Iran and Britain have a very... Um, I think, in political terms, a traumatic historical relationship, for obvious reasons, in terms of the coup of 1953, for instance. But I, I think the relationship is very politically charged, uh, particularly from the Iranian side. And they view Britain very much as perfidious Albion and this sort of thing, from an official perspective. Historically, and this goes to my point about actually reading the history rather than the mythology, the history is much more interesting and the history is much more nuanced. It's a much more bilateral relationship. You know, as I always say, the Iranians, even officially in the state, have a have a slightly uh, a contradictory, shall we say, attitude to Britain. So they're very keen on coming here, being educated here, having medical treatment here and whatever. But at the same time, they'll be very abusive about the British government. You know, what fascinates me in terms of the British-Iranian relationship and it is British, by the way. I mean, it's not English. I mean, the, 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 the Iranians always talk about the English because that's the way in, when they're used in the language, they say English, English, English. But it is British because, I mean, you know, as I always say to my, you know, my Scottish friends, you know, the Scots were all over the place in Iran in, in, in critical times as <laughs> diplomats, as military, as this, that, and the other. And the reason for that, of course, is British India. So British India is really a part, as I talk to colleagues here who work on India the, during the Raj and others in the East India Company, it's, you know, Persian is the language of government in India, really, until 1857. So uh, what's fascinating is that the the the, um, the Brits who were going to Iran for diplomatic, mer mercantile, you know, political other reasons, they're coming mainly from India. They come from India and come from a cultural environment that's very familiar to the Iranians because it's partly Persian, and therefore they move in. And, and actually the critical, one of the first um, in the, uh, historians of Iran in the English language, was a Scot, actually, who originally came from Fife, Sir John Malcolm. And Sir John Malcolm was a sort of governor-general in India. Went to Iran, I think, three times at the beginning of the 19th century and wrote this monumental history of Persia, uh, first of its kind in the English language, which, you know, Walter Scott thought was marvellous. I mean, it was, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great tome. But he was able to do that, and I think his understanding of Iran was so good because he was in India and because he was fluent in the languages. I, his work, I think... Has, has a you know has lasted it's interesting that if you talk to people today on a political sense they have a very caricature understanding of the relationship between britain and iran the relationship between britain and iran in my view is much more interesting but you need to read about it you know you need to look at it you need to pick out the detail i think there's a lot of things that are coming out and hopefully you know as i approach retirement I shall be writing a proper detailed uh, history of British-Iranian relations, which will look at the nuances from the 19th century onwards. Uh, and I, you know, I think extricate, hopefully help to extricate ourselves from some of the caricatures and the stereotypes that come from both sides. But of course, Ali, there's more than that as well. There's feeding into various organs of government who, who deal with... Um, with Iran, there's there's not many people with your knowledge, your skill set out yeah. there. So actually, there's a real practical application for for the knowledge that you have, which is a really important, privileged, I think, place to be in. I mean, you like to think that you have a sort of an impact. I wouldn't want to exaggerate, you know, 
how much influence I, I may or may not have. Obviously, I've engaged a lot with uh, polit- politicians and government and others over the years. I mean, as, as, as others do too. And, and, you know, you like to think you're providing an insight, certainly injecting into the debate. I'll leave it to others to decide whether that's had a, you know, whether that's had a positive impact or not. What I can say is that, you know, I've argued for a very, very long time now that languages, for instance, need to be invested in. And we don't. The point is, for instance, I always draw this contrast. The Americans, for all their flaws, uh, do have a programme of strategic languages which are basically invested in and universities get benefits. And, and, you know, interestingly for me, you know, while Arabic has been a language that people obviously after 9-11 and others, people got very excited about Arabic. But as far as I'm aware, you know, languages such as Turkish or Persian and others have not really had the, the same level of attention. And it's a great pity because traditionally in this country, because of India, because of empire, if you will, Persian was um, much more widely studied uh, than it is today. Um, I've been at uh, select committees and others where we've had evidence and we've argued very heavily for the fact that there needs to be greater attention devoted to language training because these are long-term projects. Uh, but, in, in, you know, you have to start somewhere, if I can put it that way. Um, and, it, of course, it just I, I just don't think it has been done. Uh, and, and, of course, that, that puts us, I think, at a disadvantage. What are you working on at the minute? Well, at the moment, uh, there's two things, really. One is I sort of continue building up this sort of idea of uh, working on this study of British-Iranian relations. So that's how, and I, you know, I'm working, I've done a series of articles, actually, which will come out. Some of them are more um, obtuse, I should say, although I think quite interesting. I mean, because one of the ones that I did was um, actually the first, one of the first histories of Britain written in the Persian language. I mean, what's fascinating about the first Iranians, Persians who came to Britain in 1815 Malcolm actually sponsored a couple of them, is they seem to have exclusively talked to Whig politicians. One of them is quite clearly Palmerston was a source because, I mean, he, he's very scathing about the Tories, which uh, is quite interesting. And uh, But, you know, the whole history of Britain is a very Whiggish history. It's like, you know, the great triumphs of this. But, you know, not uncritical. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting history. It's uh, It's not a history as we would understand it in terms of it's much more anecdotal, it's much more narrative story-like. Um, for me, it was fascinating to see that Alfred the Great and Ethelstan and, you know, William the Conqueror and others all turning up, you know, in, in Persian. So th- those are sort of things, those shorter pieces I've done. And then, but the other thing that I'm still really, which is my bigger project, um, an immediate project, is really on mythologies, history and myth in, in, in Iranian, modern Iranian political culture, is something that I, I think needs to be done. And it's really about, you know, what we were talking about earlier, about this, the politicisation of history, but what it tells us about the way Iranians think about their the world around them. You know, so I have sort of two tracks, basically. And of course, there's overlap. I mean, there is overlap because, you know, one of the, the British ambassador who left, who the revolution happened on his watch, there was obviously a post-mortem done of you know, why the British haven't foretold the, the revolution. I mean, nobody did really, but, you know. And he, he had a wonderful line in his, uh, in his response to this, to this report where he said, you know, that we have suffered from a failure of imagination. And that phrase is a wonderful phrase. It is a failure of imagination. And it's a failure of imagination, I think, on both sides. But it, I think the important thing about the imagination is, is that the relationship is built on not only what happened, but what people think happened. I do think that as the job of the historian is not only to write the history as we see it, but also to write the history as they see it. (laughs) 
thank you to Professor Ali Ansari for sharing his insights and explaining some of the work that he's doing here at the University of St Andrews. And thanks to you for listening. Look out for our next episode when we'll be talking to Dr Peter Mackay from the School of English. You can find all our episodes through your favourite podcast hosting service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do like, share and review. And never miss an episode by clicking subscribe to One Square Mile. Thank you.